song that I'm singing about People you know is true If you black and gotta work for a living This is what they will say to you They says if you's white, she's alright If you was brown, stick around But as you black, mm-mm, brother Get back, get back, get back. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Brady Heberlin. It's Tuesday, July 28, 2020. Civil rights leader John Lewis died Friday, July 17th at the age of 80. Today, we'll pay tribute to the life work of Lewis by revisiting our September 2015 program, Necessary Trouble, a graphic example from John Lewis. Host and producer Doug Storm interviews Nate Powell and Andrew Iden about their work on the graphic novel trilogy of Lewis's memories of his civil rights activism titled March. Get back, get back, get back. Me and a man was working side by side. This is what it meant. They was praying him a dollar an hour and they was... Paint me fifty cents to say if you was white, you'd be all right. If you was brown, you could stick around. But as you black, mm-mm, boy, get back, get back, get back. John Lewis was one of the big six leaders of groups who organized the 1963 March on Washington as the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from 1963 to 1966. Lewis also served in the United States House of Representatives for Georgia's 5th Congressional District from 1987 until his recent death on July 17th at the age of 80. We'll close the program with an audio selection from Lewis's speech at the March on Washington. He was just 23 years old at the time. Medgar Evers had died in June of the same year at the age of 37. Malcolm X would die in February of 1965 at the age of 39. And Martin Luther King Jr. would die in 1968 at the age of 39. Our opening song is Black, Brown, and White, written in 1945 and performed by Big Bill Brunzi. Brunzi said that his protest song is, quote, just about the way the working Negro is treated in this country on all jobs in the North, in the East, and in the West, and you all know it's true, unquote. And now, John Lewis and Necessary Trouble on Interchange on WFHB. Get back, get back, get back. This is Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Tonight's program is Necessary Trouble, a graphic example from John Lewis. Be aware that you will hear a racial epithet in this clip. Come back here, my love. This church, First Baptist Church, this historic church, means so much to me. I first came here in 1958, walked through those doors, and Dr. King spoke up and said, Are you the boy from Troy? Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I'm John Robert Lewis. I wanted to do something. I wanted to make a contribution. I wanted to say no to segregation and racial discrimination. I didn't have any idea meeting Martin Luther King Jr. It was at that time, at that moment, we had such a profound impact on my life. We had the very first city in here in Nashville. And I took my seat at the counter. 
I asked the waitress for a hamburger and a Coke. I said, I'm sorry, our management does not allow us to serve niggers in here. I was sitting there demanding a God-given right, and my soul became satisfied that I was right in what I was doing. At the same time, with something deep down within me, moving me, that I could no longer be satisfied or go along with an evil system. I had to be maladjusted to it. And in spite of all of this, I had to keep loving the people who denied me service. I was growing up, my mother and my father and grandparents told us, don't get in the way. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. And I said today, many of us as young people got in the way. We got in trouble. But it was good trouble. Jim Lawson was my teacher, and a teacher for many of us. He is the one that taught us the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. He taught us that means and ends are inseparable. If you want to build a beloved community, the good society, the open society, if that is the end, if that is the goal, then the way must be one of love, one of peace. That was John Lewis speaking in present day and also at the time of the Freedom Rides and sit-ins. Again, this is Interchange. Our program is Necessary Trouble and centers on telling the story of John Lewis's participation in the Civil Rights Movement. By way of preparation, besides reading the two published volumes of March, I watched a few speeches, a few documentary episodes, and a few book talk presentations. In one of these, one of tonight's guests mentions a study done by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which was published in September of 2011 called Teaching the Movement, the State Standards We Deserve. Here are some revealing paragraphs from its introduction. The National Assessment of Educational Progress, commonly called the Nation's Report Card, tells a dismal story. Only 2% of high school seniors in 2010 could answer a simple question about the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark Brown v. Board of Education decision. Rather than recognizing the profound national significance of the civil rights movement, most states mistakenly see it as a regional matter or a topic of interest mainly for black students. Nine of the 12 highest scoring states are from the former Confederacy. They're joined by the states of Illinois, Maryland, and New York. Generally speaking, the farther away from the South and the smaller the African-American population, the less attention is paid to the civil rights movement. In many ways, the civil rights movement has been separated from a movement for quite some time. Popular narratives create the impression that a small group of charismatic leaders, particularly Rosa Parks and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., were primarily responsible for civil rights gains. Parks is justly venerated for her activism in triggering the Montgomery bus boycott, yet too many depictions of her portray a lone woman who was simply tired and did not want to give up her seat on a bus to a white person. In reality, she was a trained participant in a well-organized social movement. The reduction of the movement into simple fables obscures both the personal sacrifices of those who engaged in the struggle and the breadth of the social and institutional changes they wrought. The King and Parks-centered narrative limits what we teach students about the range of possible political action. Students deserve to learn that individuals acting collectively can move powerful institutions 
to change. Again, that was from the uh, 2011 study from the Southern Poverty Law Center called Teaching the Movement, the State Standards We Deserve, to address these issues. And surely, if nothing else, March is intended to at least begin to address these issues. We'll be speaking with Andrew Iden, co-author of the graphic novelization of Congressman John Lewis's life in the direct action, nonviolent protest movement for civil rights in the late 50s and early 60s, and with Nate Powell, award-winning illustrator of the projected three-volume march and Bloomington resident. With us tonight by phone is Andrew Iden, digital director and policy advisor to Congressman John Lewis in Washington, D.C., and co-author of March. Nate Powell is here. He's a graphic novelist and Bloomington resident whose work includes March, the graphic novel autobiography of Congressman Lewis, and Rick Riordan's Lost Hero, You Don't Say... Any Empire, Swallow Me Whole, which won the 2009 Eisner Award for Best Original Graphic Novel, The Silence of Our Friends, and The Year of the Beasts. Uh, Andrew Iden, we just heard from John Lewis about his heroes, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Jim Lawson, and surely John Lewis must be counted among our heroes. But the there are those also not engaged. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, for one, Malcolm X, also within the pages of the book uh, March, uh, though I guess Lewis has more respect for Malcolm than for Carmichael. Where does John Lewis fit in the in the picture of civil rights? John Lewis deserves his place in the pantheon. He was known as one of the big six leaders of the civil rights movement. Um, I think if you look at the report that you mentioned and, and, and gave a very generous introduction to, um, I, you find that these leaders were um, varied in their beliefs um, and, and committed um, to varying degrees to nonviolence. But no person was more committed uh, than John Lewis. And that's why um, he was beaten so severely, because on so many different occasions, because he was willing to put his body on the line uh, in furtherance of that belief that nonviolence can be a transformative uh, principle uh, for social change. Beaten severely is is one thing that certainly comes up uh, again and again, especially in the book. This is a uh, a difficult period of of time, and I think we uh, we now in 2015 we see a lot of unrest, we see a lot of uh, violence in the streets, we see police brutality. Uh, I I don't think we quite understand the level of this activity at the time in the in the 60s. Can you speak to that a bit? Uh, absolutely. We we certainly do not uh, understand the level of preparation, the level of discipline, uh, and the level of strategy. Um, to put it another way, uh, Dr. King um, and, and Congressman Lewis often uh, would phrase it as, y- you have to make it plain, and you have to dramatize the conflict. Um, and that's what they tried to do. And oftentimes you would see the news reports summing up uh, a conflict as a, a simple interchange. Um, but it, at its core, these were well-thought-out, well-choreographed, um, and, and uh, well-executed um, uh, efforts. And as we look at these events going on today, um, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement or previously we've seen Occupy, um, people are struggling to fully apply uh, the principles of nonviolence. And in many cases, we're often still debating the, the relevance and the usefulness of it. Um, but what we're trying to do through March is to show that nonviolence uh, isn't simply one way, it is the only way. Um, for, for protesters today, they, they have an obstacle um, in the form of many of their public leaders. Uh, John Lewis is the rare exception. And if they are going to put the pressure on their public leaders uh, to be accountable, then they're going to have to find a way to make that conflict and to make their principles for which they are fighting evident to every person. Um, we have a media system uh, that all too often simplifies these, 
these conflicts and provides very little background, to which I will say your introduction today was a, a remarkable exception, and I'm grateful for that. Um, if they're going to fight in that media environment, they need to use social media, which is a principle, uh, which is a tool that they did not have during the, the civil rights movement. Um, but through that social media use, they need to apl apply the principles of nonviolence. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just who do you think I am? You raise my taxes, freeze my wages, and send my son to Vietnam. You give me second-class houses and second-class schools. Do you think that all colored folks are just second-class fools, Mr. Backlash? You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today, we celebrate the life and work of civil rights leader John Lewis, who died July 17th at the age of 80. Our show is an edited version of our September 2015 interview with Nate Powell and Andrew Iden about their work on the graphic novel trilogy of Lewis's memories of his civil rights activism titled March. But the world is big, big and bright and round, and it's full of folks like me who are black, yellow, beige, and brown, Mr. Backlash. Um, you mentioned, uh, Andrew, in a speech you gave at the 2014 National Book Festival, um, the restlessness of the generation, and you were just talking about that right there as well, needing to know how to use nonviolence, needing to be effective, orderly, and disciplined. I think that part of the issue might be an inability to sort of grapple with a, a tangible enemy in some sense, that you indicate in detail throughout the books that um, Congressman Lewis and the Freedom Riders and the marchers and the sit-ins and the, the protesters, um, the civil rights movement had, in effect, a very visible enemy, in a sense, or a very visible opposition. Uh, Whites-only counters, whites-only restrooms, whites-only fountains for water, uh, blacks in, in the back of the bus, uh, these kinds of things become visible manifestations of racism and prejudice, and it's uh, a thing to fight against and, and to stand in front of. And perhaps today, there's less visible uh, you know, things to sort of stand against, how to be non-violently protesting against things that don't seem to stand in your way, but might stand in your way in terms of economic issues, in terms of poverty, things of that nature. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's less visible today. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that those who protect the status quo have learned from the lessons of the civil rights movement. Um, during the movement itself, you saw varying degrees of response. Uh, the brutality that you saw in Selma uh, or, or in Birmingham uh, from the mobs uh, was an exception. Uh, efforts in places like Albany uh, were met with a much more uh, genteel approach and did not receive the same attention or the same success. Uh, oftentimes we find ourselves um, looking for a villain, and sometimes movements have to find them themselves uh, in order to dramatize their conflict. Uh, today, the forms of, of racism, the forms of discrimination, take many insidious forms and can be seen as an outgrowth of things like the White Citizens Council, which was essentially a businessman's Ku Klux Klan. Um, forms of economic discrimination are less visible, but no less insidious. If we're going to address these things, we have to still use the same principles, um, but we have to attack them uh, head on. Um, whether it's, uh, uh, I mean, you look at the March on Washington. This was a march on, the March on Washington was titled uh, A March for Jobs and Freedom. 
Um, when we look at the, the systems of discrimination and exclusion, we oftentimes exclude uh, the, the, the struggle to find uh, economic justice. And today, those are the struggles that we're, we're having to face, and they are harder to dramatize. Um, but at the same time, they've grown so extreme that it's much more uh, readily recognized uh, in today's society. The uh, nonviolence at the time seemed to work well, but it seems at a distance perhaps that the provocation was what was, <clears throat> excuse me, necessary at the time. In a sense, you could provoke reaction against the nonviolence, that the evil that could manifest itself in violent reaction to nonviolence, violent reaction to uh, a, a person of color across the, from the counter, uh, violent reaction uh, is provoked by this nonviolence, and it's in seeing that violence that the nation was able to see bigotry, racism, and to see victims, to see, I don't want to say victimized, but victims of that violence and, and uh, people being beaten uh, were able to, I guess, to be shown to the country in a way that maybe we hadn't been able to see before. Yes, but they built towards that. I mean, Selma was the result of, of several years of dramatic struggle. Um, and, and to get to that conflict, you even had a conflict within uh, the, the government of Selma, where the public safety director, who was appointed by the mayor, uh, who was essentially the chief of police, was not in favor of using the tactics that Sheriff Jim Clark, Clark had been elected publicly, um, at, largely in response to, to uh, anti-protester uh, sentiments and, and a more hardline approach to uh, the protests. And so um, finding those villains is, is part of the process. Um, finding someone who clearly demonstrates uh, what others may be able to more uh, 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 cleverly hide um, is, is essential to being able to dramatize that conflict. Do you get a sense that, that, that villains are there more than a mass of people who are haters? You know, that all leaders, uh, so, so a leader can be a good leader, a leader can be a John Lewis, but a leader can be uh, the, the sheriff that you just spoke of, or a bull, I forget his last name, I'm sorry. Um, Honor. Yeah, Bull Connor. So leaders, uh, in a sense, point the direction for our um, our waffling moral center sometimes. Leaders are oftentimes a reflection of ourselves, and as are our villains. When you look at the villains in the form of sheriffs, uh, because they were popularly elected, they did reflect sort of the, the hardline view that many people had. But today, you see a police force in many cases who's oftentimes very media savvy. You look at what happened in Baltimore, and they were covering up arrests from the cameras by using some of these large uh, 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 surplus military vehicles. Um, and the individuals would get, protested, would get arrested away from the cameras. Um, the big difference that we're seeing today in terms of accountability is that everybody has a camera phone. And this goes back to the idea of using social media. So the villains have changed, but so have the tools. And we have to use those tools with the principles uh, to find those villains and to show exactly what it is that they're doing. Do you get a sense that there is a real gap from 1966 forward? Uh, as I'm looking at your books, I, uh, you know, it seems so pertinent and relevant, and yet it seems so long ago, and it seems lost to us now. Uh, I like that you, you, know, you talk about people by name. There's, there are real people here. There are real actors. There are real heroes. There are real villains. This is history that makes a difference. But in the intervening years, what has happened? You know, what when we look, I would not ask more from John Lewis than these years that are de depicted in this in these volumes and in the next one to come, I assume. I would not say what else has John Lewis done? What else need he do? Have we, you know, what's happened in the interim? Uh, and I've got Nate Powell here as well, who, who, who was actually wanting to answer this question. So go ahead, Nate. Well, I just wanted to say, uh, getting involved with the March Project, this is one of the major uh, concepts that I needed to sort of regularly 
uh, remind myself of uh, the fact that this is history. It's a first-person account of history. But primarily, when we're working together with Congressman Lewis, this is John Lewis's account of his life in the movement. And so there are a few times in which we step outside of events for which he was present, but uh, from Congressman Lewis's perspective, as we'll cover by the end of book three, he personally uh, sees that the movement as he knows it ended more or less in the fall, late summer of 65, with the mm-hmm. passage of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, his activism certainly didn't change, and the players in the movement uh, you know, kept on doing their work, but this is on his on his terms from his perspective. So there there are times where yeah, I'll sort of have to check myself when I'm having certain doubts or editorial questions to pass back to Andrew and the congressman. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's program, Necessary Trouble, focuses on Congressman John Lewis and the tumultuous and violent years of the civil rights movement via the medium of the graphic novel. We'll be back in a minute. This is Interchange on WFHB. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? I know you can feel it Can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset And Governor Wallace has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Hound dogs on my trail School children sitting in jail Black cat crossed my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on the land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer Don't tell me, I'll tell you People just about do I've been there So I know they keep on Saying go slow That's just the trouble Washing the windows Picking the cotton We're just playing rotten Talk. 
talk real fine just like a lady and you'd stop calling me sister sadie my country is full of lies we are all gonna die and die like flies i don't trust nobody anymore they keep on saying go slow that's just the trouble desegregation mass participation Welcome back. This is Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's program is Necessary Trouble. Uh, That was Nina Simone with Mississippi Goddamn. Tonight's show focuses on Congressman John Lewis and the tumultuous and violent years of the civil rights movement via the medium of the graphic novel. John Lewis, along with Andrew Iden, are the authors of March, and its illustrator is Bloomington resident Nate Powell. Uh, Nate Powell is here in the studio, and Andrew Iden is on the telephone. Nate, let's uh, go to you for a second here. I I have a book review uh, from, I think this is the first volume, actually, on NPR.org by Jody Arlington. Uh, She says, Powell's faithful representation of known historical characters and immersive creation of the time period stands out. His sense of pace and his affecting ability to tease out silent, intimate moments also set the book apart from traditional, text-heavy, historical graphic storytelling. One senses when reading this volume that it's power, accessibility, and artistry destined it for awards and a well-deserved place at the pinnacle of the comics canon. That's pretty nice. Yes, indeed. That's some good praise. Uh, she notes the one thing that, that is really fascinating, and we talked uh, before the show started, actually, about the ability to to draw real people and to capture real people in this particular medium. New thing for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, occasionally the demands, you know, in a, an illustration for a magazine or a record cover or something, I'll have to do that. But uh, one of the biggest challenges right out of the starting gate was the, the sheer anxiety of knowing that not only was this a matter of depicting hundreds of recognizable historical figures, but depicting, you know, for example, Dr. King, one of the most recognizable humans on the planet, 500 times over the course of three books or four books or whatever. Um, One of my tryout pages to actually get the job for March, uh, one of the first pages I ever did was a young John Lewis meeting Dr. King for the first time. So I I very quickly had to kind of get over that hurdle of anxiety and realize it was a matter of uh, doing the homework, following through, and trying not to look back. To get the job, you had to um, submit pages or, or drawings yeah, to the text. It, so you and uh, was this with the publisher, Andrew, uh, as well, Andrew and uh, Congressman Lewis? Uh, would... this, this was all up to Andrew and Congressman mm-hmm. Lewis. Uh, I've been working with our publisher for a decade now. So uh, my publisher gave me a call and let me know about the project, which I'd seen a little press release about, but it didn't hit me. There was no artist yet. And he's like, oh, I strongly suggest you try out for this. It's up to the authors. And then it was just kind of a standard submission process. And I got a couple of pages of script, uh, turned them in. I got some notes. I redrew them, got some more notes. I tweaked those pages. And a couple weeks in, we realized that we were going to click really well together. Well, that's nice. Andrew, uh, we, Nate just mentioned script there. Uh, so what's the process for creating a, a graphic novel based on the congressman's recollections of this time? I'm sure there are lots and lots of pages and recollections to sort of call through. How do you go through doing that? There, there's a lot of work that has to be done before you can sit down and, and actually start scripting. But let me just address one point real quick, uh, and it's why Nate Powell is so important to March and March's success. 
Um, you just played a song uh, by Nina Simone, who uh, became so moved by what was happening in the South uh, that she began to engage as an artist and suffered um, r- real pushback because of it. And Congressman will talk about creating the climate, creating the environment for people to respond to these sort of things. And without artists of such power and eloquence and talent, um, just as Nate Powell is able to bring these words to the page, um, you're not able to fully uh, succeed in bringing about a new nonviolent movement. And so that's why we're really, really excited to have Nate uh, bringing his talent to this project and, and why I believe it's been so successful. Um, to speak to your question, I think, uh, you know, you start with primary document and the congressman's voice. Um, so it's a lot of uh, interviews, talking to the congressman, talking about what he re- remembers. Uh, I've been with him for almost 10 years now, and so I've got to see him tell these stories to young people uh, in many different ways and in many different capacities. And so they became um, something of a mythology to me that, that became part of uh, everything I loved about America. And so you start with that. You start with his words, and then you go look at um, these, these documents that some unbelievable people in California have begun to put online. Uh, SNCC has, uh, in my opinion, one of the best uh, uh, archive systems uh, or, or, or documentation systems of their activities during the movement. So we would read things uh, like their meeting minutes or their memos and their progress report. Um, another publication was called the SNCC Student Voice, which was a, a monthly, bi-monthly uh, newsletter system that they sent out. Uh, I remember they were making these with nothing but a mimeograph machine and photographs. These were not days where you could just post a quick blog. Um, and so these were first-hand accounts. So anytime you had to check something on that, you had the opportunity to go back and say and, and look and see what they were talking about, what they were saying at that moment in time. And oftentimes uh, they, in these documents, they included the, 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 the words of the people in these meetings. And so that allowed us to bring a, a real authenticity to this, uh, a deep dive. Um, so many of the other uh, books about the civil rights movement focus on what I call the story of gods and kings. Um, and, and we were trying to do something different. We were trying to tell the story of the young people, because today the young people are so important to any future we may have. Um, and so we would sit down, the congressman and I, you know, work on the Hill. He's a member of Congress. He's got a lot of pressures on his time. And so this was nights and weekends for years. And, and up until today, um, we still are doing this at night and on weekends. Um, <laughs> My mother teases me because she says I gave up my 20s for this. We started working on it when I was 24, and virtually every weekend and every spare night I had was spent working on these scripts and talking to the congressman and showing them to it. And it was an incredible process, one for which I'm incredibly grateful to have been a part of. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just who do you think I am? You raise my taxes, freeze my wages, and send my son to Vietnam. Give me second-class houses and second-class schools. Do you think that all colored folks are just second-class fools, Mr. Backlash? You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today, we celebrate the life and work of civil rights leader John Lewis, who died July 17th at the age of 80. Our show is an edited version of our September 2015 interview with Nate Powell and Andrew Iden about their work on the graphic novel trilogy of Lewis's memories of his civil rights activism titled March. But the world is big, big and bright and round, and it's full of folks like me who are black, yellow, beige, and brown, Mr. Backlash. Backlash 
you just mentioned uh, sort of the uh, text-heavy historical uh, documentation in a sense, and I wonder if that was a part of the that original comic book you mentioned, uh, the MLK comic book from 1956 that John Lewis singles out as an important, influential piece I- I- at the time. Yeah, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story, which was the comic book that you referenced, published by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was a uh, organization uh, very active in the movement and I'm still active today. Um, it, it, it was an, it was a primer. It was 14 pages of story that that told us the Montgomery bus boycott uh, from an outsider's perspective, and it introduced you to Dr. King, and it introduced you to uh, the principles of Gandhi and nonviolence, and it introduced you to Rosa Parks. Uh, and so that was our inspiration, and we tried to draw from from that. Uh, and, and make something uh, bigger, so that, in a sense, uh, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story was the prequel to March. Um, and so you can read that and get a very brief understanding and then see where we were coming from as we approached March. One thing you mentioned, too, earlier is um, the sort of long history of the movement before it sort of becomes apparent to the rest of the country, perhaps, you know, uh, and you and you mentioned SNCC as well, and I think it's one of the things that get lo- gets lost for us here today as well, is understanding how these things, uh, or what these things even mean, SNCC, a Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, for you, I think you just mentioned there as well, the Fellowship for Reconciliation, there's CORE, the Committee on Racial Equality, uh, all these things are kind of anagrams from nowhere at this point in time. And it's important, I think, as you said, to kind of remember that this is an organized and organizing uh, idea to to find equality and to keep working towards it in this particular fashion. Yes, I mean, these are organizations in some respects that have been forgotten by history or at least forgotten in our classrooms. And it's not right. I mean, these are incredible organizations run by men and women of unbelievable character and dedication. Um, one of the things we've tried very hard to do with March is to pay them their due. Uh, one example uh, that, that's always stuck with me is that at the end of book two, spoiler alert, <laughs> the, the um, Baird Rustin, who was the principal organizer of the March on Washington, um, this was a person who wasn't allowed to be the official chairman because they were so afraid of the attacks uh, on him for being gay. And uh, he later gave an interview where he said that the most meaningful moment of his life uh, was when A. Philip Randolph uh, was in the, the hotel in which they were organizing from, and the March on Washington was over, and he was staring up at the sign. And A. Philip Randolph had originally conceived of the March on Washington idea in 1941 in a standoff with FDR. And Rustin walks in, and, and he sees his mentor, his friend, and he says, Hey, boss, I just want you to know there's, there's not a, a scrap of paper, there's not any trash, the, the streets of Washington are absolutely clean. And Randolph turns around and cries and just thanks Rustin. Um, and for all of the, the hate that was thrown at them for proposing such a bold idea as the March on Washington, um, this is an intensely personal and meaningful moment where uh, Rustin could say that he did it and could say it to the man to whom the march meant the most. Um, but those moments have been forgotten by history. They're not taught in our classrooms, and they're not uh, shown as, as great moments. Um, but that's what we're trying to change, and that's why you see that scene at the end. It's our own way of saying thank you to someone like Baird Rustin. Nate Powell, you were asked in a CBR Comic Book Resources uh, TV uh, interview how the book uh, might have changed you, how working on the book might have changed you. And, and, and you said in particular that it, there was a sense of having depict violence, how, ha- having to draw violent images in a way that didn't rely on, on the sort of manipulation of emotion in a sense or, or being focused on the violence itself. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. Uh, and I enjoy answering that question, especially when I'm asked 
when I'm asked, it's sort of in a comic book con- context uh, because whether there are it's no com- there are yeah, <laughs> yeah so it's and, comic and, book violence and and violent violence at the same time. Yeah, right? basically, the right the, way to say it. Yeah, this is where you know March has embedded itself in uh, in terms of uh, schools, libraries as a form of history, memoir, literature, but also. It's, uh, it's very nice that it's sort of bringing comics up to the forefront as well. And in speaking about that, one of the things that really, um, you know, hits me continually um, is the fact that, uh, you know, as a child of the 1980s, uh, you know, and a lover of comics my whole life and everything, um, I'm just as desensitized to visual depictions of violence in comics and movies on TV as anyone else. The violence depicted both verbally and physically in book two is exponentially greater than that in book one. And so we really tried to focus on and highlight how the relatively small gains uh, that SNCC achieved by the end of book one were met with a disproportionate backlash of violence and legislation. Uh, And so some of the acts of violence which did occur, which are depicted faithfully, um, are, uh, are quite brutal. Some are, you know, very subtle. And so it's when trying to approach this, you know, I'm used to a certain visual vocabulary when depicting violence in comics. I grew up on superhero comics and G.I. Joe comics. Um, and so a lot of the, the visual vocabulary has to kind of be thrown in the trash uh, because you don't need to bring the expressionistic value of the violence to the forefront anymore. And uh, there's a mantra that Congressman Lewis always kind of returns to when we have some of these bigger questions about representation in the book, which is tell the story, tell the whole story, make it plain, make it real. And by plain, he doesn't mean make it simple. He means make it unconcealed, shine a light on it. Uh, And when it comes to violence, uh, yeah, it sort of struck me that nothing extra has to be done, but it makes even slight acts uh, repulsive. And, And in a lot of ways, it makes the book, I feel like when it's most successful in those dark moments, it makes it a horror book. And I feel that I should be repulsed as the artist, as a creator. The reader should hopefully be horrified and repulsed at these moments. Uh, Right now, today, on the 52nd anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, right now I'm drawing the scene depicting the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church for March Book 3. And just all weekend moving into this week. It's just kind of a constant uh, centering, a wake-up call, um, while constantly being horrified and repulsed, also reminding myself that not only is this my responsibility, but I get to sit in the comfort of my two-story home and draw this, draw these things, you know. Right. So uh, a good point there to, to to bring up, and and what Andrew had mentioned earlier about the education. You keep uh, keep coming back to education, and I know in that 2014 speech you talked about this as well. And if we look at that uh, again, the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center's um, report on this, it, it it nearly every state fails to do any civil rights education at all. And for the most part, we stick to educating people about leaders like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, Rosa Parks. The, as we said before, they become fables of a time past. Uh, Andrew, can you speak to any more to the, the educational aspect of, of March? Well, let me say this. Uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's the Reverend of Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King's old church, said during a Dr. King ceremony, uh, Dr. King holiday ceremony, um, or service at his church uh, about two years ago, 
that the Dr. King that we celebrate today is not the one that was assassinated in 1968. Um, so when you speak to fables, uh, that's, that's it to a certain extent, but we've watered down the power of these individuals and we've watered down their radicalism. Um, what we're trying to do is to show these young people today that they have a cr- tremendous power. Um, I, I'm of the belief that the exclusion of civil rights education from uh, a well-rounded education in the United States has been systematic and deliberate. Um, empowering these young people empowers them to uh, be able to fight against the status quo that is not simply political, but it's socioeconomic. Um, John Lewis grew up the, sh- the, the child of, of sharecroppers. He grew up with, uh, in, a, in a poor family, um, and, and yet he was able to rise through nonviolence to a position of prominence. When we look at young people today, um, they're saddled with so much debt if they can manage to get through school that they're, it's impossible for them to grow up and, and, and become an activist uh, and, and, and to further the moral cause of their generation. Um, if we're going to be able to empower them to do that, we have to teach them the principles and how to stick up for themselves because the generation behind, uh, the generation between John Lewis and, and the generation today has let them down in many respects. I can go look at Stephen Colbert's commencement speech from two years ago, and he says that we don't owe them anything. We owe it to China. Um, we've, we've mortgaged this generation's future in order to provide an abundance of luxury to this uh, adult generation, present company excluded. Um, I, I think if we're going to be able to, to teach these kids how to fight for themselves in a global economy, we have to teach them how to be activists, because that's the only way we're going to change our policies. That's the only way we're going to move things forward. The election of Barack Obama was a tremendous step forward, but what we failed to do was give him a Congress that was willing to take the bold stands and to risk their seats uh, at the urging of a, of a uh, frustrated public. And so we got a Congress that simply tried to frustrate the president. And we've got to change that. We've got to show them that their vote matters. We've got to show them that their activism matters. And we've got to show them that they, above all, will be the ones who save us from ourselves. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's program, Necessary Trouble, focuses on Congressman John Lewis and the tumultuous and violent years of the civil rights movement via the medium of the graphic novel. We'll be back in a minute with more on Interchange. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Every since it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there. But I know a change gonna come Oh, yes it will I go to the movie And I go downtown Somebody keep telling me don't Hang around It's been a long But I know a change gonna come Oh, yes it will Then I go 
to my brother And I say, brother, help me please But he winds up knocking me But I know a change gon' come Oh, yes it will Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm. You're listening to tonight's program, Necessary Trouble, focusing on Congressman John Lewis and the tumultuous and violent years of the civil rights movement via the medium of the graphic novel, March. There are two volumes out now, March Book 1 and Book 2, written by Andrew Iden and John Lewis, as well as illustrated by Nate Powell, Bloomington resident. Right now, I'd like to play, uh, as a kind of education, uh, John Lewis's speech for the March on Washington. We'll try to hear as much as we can of it, but we're, we're going to run short on time. So I'll play as much as I can, and then we'll talk a little bit about how it was edited. Okay? So here we go. This is John Lewis. We march today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of. For hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. For they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi who are out in the field working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. While we stand here, there are students in jail on trumped-up charges. Our brother James Farmer, along with many others, is also in jail. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless, unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police jobs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstration. In its present form, this bill will not protect the citizen of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear of a police state. It will not protect the hundreds and thousands of people who have been arrested upon Trump charges. What about the three young men, Snickfield's secretary in America's Georgia, who faced a death penalty for engaging in peaceful protests? As it stands now, the voting section of this bill will not help the thousands of white people who want to vote. It will not help the citizens of Mississippi, of Alabama, and Georgia who are qualified to vote but lack a sixth grade education. One man, one vote, is the African crime. It is our tool. It must be ours. We must have legislation that will protect the Mississippi sharecropper, who is put off of his farm because he dared to register to vote. We need a bill that will provide for the homeless and starving people of this nation. We need a bill that will ensure the equality of a maid 
who earned $5 a week in the home of a family whose income is $100,000 a year. We must have a good FEPC bill. My friends, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. But by and large, American politics is dominated by politicians who build their career on immoral compromising and align themselves with open form of political, economic, and social exploitation. There are exceptions, of course. We salute those. But what political leader can stand up and say my party is a party of principles? For the party of Kennedy is also the party of Eastland. The party of Javis is also the party of Goldwater. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? Where is the political party that will protect the citizens of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrats, but by the Frederick government for peaceful protests. But what did the Frederick government do when Albany Deputy Sheriff beat Attorney C.B. Kane and left him half dead? What did the Frederick government do when local police official kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail, but we will go to jail if this, this is the price we must pay for love, brotherhood, and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city Every village and helmet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. For in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom. talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland, Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just who do you think I am? You raise my taxes, freeze my wages, and send my son to Vietnam. You 
give me second class houses and second class schools do you think that all colored folks are just second class fools mr backlash you're listening to interchange on wfhb Today, we celebrate the life and work of civil rights leader John Lewis, who died July 17th at the age of 80. Our show is an edited version of our September 2015 interview with Nate Powell and Andrew Iden about their work on the graphic novel trilogy of Lewis's memories of his civil rights activism titled March. But the world is big, big and bright and round, and it's full of folks like me who are black. Yellow, beige, and brown Mr. Backlash I'm gonna leave you With a backlash blue That was Congressman John Lewis At the March on Washington That was an edited speech, right, Andrew Iden? Yes, certain things were taken out You can understand that there was a radicalism To the students that those who were trying to negotiate With the administration were against um, but the original version of the Civil Rights Act uh, and, and the voting provisions included a requirement that to be able to register and vote, you had to have a sixth grade education. Now, today we take uh, for granted the requirement that the, the, that the only requirements are age and residency. But at the time, for John Lewis and for the people of SNCC to take that position uh, was a radical move. Um, but without them, we never would have had the, the system that we have today. The radicalism you speak of, and, and Nate Powell has spoken of as well, where has that radicalism situated itself, Nate Powell, uh, as you went through and tried to understand something of, of, of John Lewis and the period as well? How has that radicalism, uh, how have you been able to situate it in, in the history of the civil rights movement and the present day? Uh, well, I think what's most captivating about uh, about March as a read and as a creation is uh, truly understanding that John Lewis was the prominent voice of the youth in the movement. As by far the youngest member of the big six, he was speaking for the students, for the teenagers, uh, and it really, it really comes through. Uh, to a lot of, you know, so much of his personal journey in the movement was a rebellion against his elders in the movement as it was his work with his elders against the system itself. And so there are times where not only is there head butting, but, you know, there's, there are just outright divergent paths taken where he is certainly on the radical end of the spectrum uh, as, as the movement changes and evolves, as different paths are taken. Um, he, you know, finds himself in confrontations uh, and making decisions based on uh, the reality that sometimes he's perceived as uh, someone who has taken a path of too much moderation, too much cooperation. Um, and so that's one of the most important things we want to highlight as it it's it's deeply personal and deeply affecting, but it's something that can really be applied. Andrew Iden, John Lewis was upset with the administration in Washington as well at the time? Yes. I mean, the, to put it in a modern context, the March on Washington called for a minimum wage, the equivalent of about $15 an hour today. Um, that was one of the key principles. And, and at the time, uh, we had a, a higher uh, adjusted wage, uh, minimum wage, than we do even today. Um, and so um, when he called out the administration, he did so on the behalf uh, on behalf of a, 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 young, a frustrated group of young people. Um, to give you an example of what he tried to say, he said that there may come a time when we do not confine our march in the streets of Washington, but we have to march through the South as Sherman did. Uh, and, you know, they said, oh, no, no, you can't say that. Um, they're a little sensitive about Sherman in the South. And so 
um, it, it was a frustrate. They were frustrated. They were deeply, deeply frustrated. And we were coming off a period of the uh, uh, the, the children's crusade and and um, uh, a reorganization and a, and a frustrated attempt to try and get the Civil Rights Act passed. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to let you have the last word tonight. Uh, where do you uh, where does March uh, take us in in Volume Three? Is uh, will there be more than Volume Three? Do we expect it to go b- beyond the trilogy? Um, well, we'll have to see about that. Um, with Book Three, we go into the Mississippi Freedom Summer, which I think is one of the biggest um, successes that has been forgotten. It was a direct challenge to democracy that uh, led to the confrontation at the Atlantic City Convention in 1964, and then ultimately we we end with Selma and Bloody Sunday and the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And I think hopefully people will take from this the lessons of the sacrifice and the individuals um, who are willing to give everything uh, to make this country what we are losing to a certain extent today. We're close tonight with Original Faubus Fables by Charles Mingus, written as a direct protest against Arkansas Governor Orville E. Faubus, who in 1957 sent out the National Guard to prevent the integration of Little Rock Central High School by nine African-American teenagers. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks to our guests, Nate Powell, illustrator of March, and Andrew Iden, digital director and policy advisor to Congressman Lewis in Washington, D.C., and co-author of March, a graphic novelization of key events in the life of Congressman John Lewis. to a tribute episode to celebrate the life of civil rights leader John Lewis, who died Friday, July 17th. He was 80 years old. This has been an edited version of John Lewis and Necessary Trouble, an interview that first aired on September 15, 2015. I'm Brady Heberlin. Doug Storm produced this live interview. Jonathan Richardson was the studio engineer, and Cade Young is our executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.